The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Uh, glorious words of the songs that we've sung today, um, that our debt has been completely paid by the sacrifice that our Savior made for us. And God, as we look to the story this morning, the story that tells of the Savior coming to rescue us, uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you take your words and do what I can't do. And Lord, I pray that, that everything that I say today that's, that's um, useless will be forgotten, but that we will leave just with an awe and amazement of the Creator who stepped into His creation to die to rescue us. Um, Lord, I pray that Christ would be honored today. We pray it in His name. Amen. Well, welcome to our Good Friday service. I want to thank the teens for the great job that they did this morning in leading us. They did, yeah. I've led singing for many years, and you've never clapped for me. <laughs> because they're better, that's why. So I, I think we should begin this morning uh, stating the obvious. Today is not Sunday. It's Friday. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is the best service of the year. It, it's a day of rejoicing. It's a day where we celebrate that there is life from death. It's a day of hope. Easter service is celebratory in every possible way. It commemorates the greatest victory over the ultimate enemy. But here we are at a Good Friday service, a day of sadness, of suffering, of death. We won't leave here smiling and saying to one another, He is risen. That's what, that's what we'll say on Sunday. He is risen indeed, but that's not what we say today. Instead, today we're faced with the grim reality that he was horrifically crucified. By all outward appearances, Jesus had lost. His mission had failed. His disciples were scattered. His guilt was established. His punishment carried out. And his enemies were victorious. And the temptation for us today is move, to move very quickly from the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, one of the hardest things to do when you're trying to organize a Good Friday service is to pick out a song that doesn't go straight to the resurrection, right? One verse about the death, and then it's all about the resurrection. And I understand that, because that's where we want to go. But I think the danger is that the death of Christ becomes some kind of parlor trick, where you know, yes, he died, but three days later, just like right after, he, he rose again and he pulled the rabbit out of the hat, and now we can celebrate Easter Sunday. But he died, and he was dead for three days. And I would argue that although Easter Sunday is the greatest day in human history, Good Friday is the most important and so my aim today is to give you the reason why that terrible, awful day where humankind crucified the Creator is good. Before we get there, how many of you have seen this picture before? What do you see? 
Well, some of you probably see an old man facing to the right, and others see the young lady. And some of you are really smart, and you see both, right? Well, in a very similar way, it is possible to look at the events of Good Friday from two very different angles and see completely different things. You can take that, that off now. <laughs> and so as we make our way through the story, let's try and keep these two views in mind, okay? On one hand, we have the crucifixion of Jesus that was a result of the sinister plot of evil men who were set out to condemn and to crucify an innocent man who challenged their authority. And, and they won. They had this plot, and they carried it out, and they won. But on the other hand, this story recounts the sovereign plan of God made before the foundation of the world to redeem and to rescue guilty men and women. We have these both things. Both are so present in this story. For the past few years, I've been working my way slowly through the book of Mark. just so happened that last time we ended with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Moments before Judas shows up with his entourage to arrest him. So I thought it was just appropriate to begin where we left off. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verse 42 in just a moment. In the garden, we have just witnessed Jesus pouring out his heart and soul to God the Father in prayer. right, Begging that God would allow the cup to pass from him, but then willing to do whatever the Father's will entailed. He is feeling the crushing weight of the coming day and is in emotional and spiritual agony greater than I think we can, we can even imagine. So he gets up from his third prayer with droplets of blood on his brow. After trusting himself to the Father's will, because he's fully aware of everything that lies ahead. And in Mark 14, 42, he says this, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. If you've been in church for any length of time, I'm sure you've pictured this scene before. But I think maybe it's lost some of the strangeness that it ought to have. So the time right now that these events are occurring is between midnight and 2 a.m. So we're in the middle of the night. It's completely dark. And now there's a mob of people who show up just outside the city in this really peaceful garden with swords and clubs. John tells us they also have torches and lanterns and weapons. And so it it is kind of a weird thought to think that Jesus is there quietly praying in in a still garden in the middle of the night. And then all of a sudden this group of violent men come with swords and clubs and torches. We might think, well, it was just cultural. They were uncivilized back then. That's just how they did things. But that would be completely wrong. The Jews had an extensive legal system, right? Probably better than ours. And the Romans were highly organized and structured. So the way that everything went down on Good Friday, it wasn't a result of uncivilized society. It was people who are driven to such anger and hatred that they broke all of their own laws to see an innocent man put to death. What happened to Jesus back then? It was completely illegal and irregular. Why would they come at night? 
Well, they came at night because if they were to come during the day, then the people would have stopped them. It would have not gone well for them. And because if they had a public trial, which is the law, they, they were only allowed to have a trial between morning worship and before the evening meal during daylight hours. And yet, they did it at night. Because if they did a day trial, it would not have gone well for them. Why would they bring weapons? Jesus had never been violent before. But they sought to incite violence and to intimidate. And then who is in charge? Well, the people who sent these soldiers are the very judges who will then judge him in the future. That's not normal. It's not normal to have a judge say, hey, go pick up this criminal um, and we'll bring him back here and then we'll try him. That's... And so all of this was very strange. Jesus had been sentenced to death before he was even in custody, right? I mean, they knew the sentence before they had the charge. Let's continue in verse 44. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. I don't want to spend a great deal of time on Judas today, but I think there's a warning here. Judas is the perfect example of who you don't want to be when it comes to how you know Jesus. He knew Jesus extremely well. He traveled with him for three years. He'd been with him constantly. He'd seen all the miracles. And in this text, we find him justifying himself to the point that he can betray Jesus and still act as though he's doing the right thing. Do you notice the little details as he comes up to Jesus? He still calls him rabbi, right? Teacher, teacher. He's giving him some kind of honor. And then he goes and he kisses him as though they're friends. It's not a normal thing you do with an enemy. And not only that, do you notice that he tells the the soldiers when they take him to take him away safely? What in the world, Judas? What did you think was happening here? You just made a deal with men who for three years have wanted to put Jesus to death. And now you're saying, hey, just take good care of him. Nah, he's blind, isn't he? And, And we ought not be like Judas, right? The truth is you can know a lot about Jesus. But until you know him as your savior, you are no better off than he is. He remained his enemy because he wanted a king and not a savior. I can tell you something, Jesus is not whoever you want him to be. He is your savior or he is your enemy. But the great news about Jesus is that he loves to save his enemies. And so it's not okay for us to call him teacher or prophet or good moral, te- moral man. We must recognize that he came, he presented himself as the son of God who was dying for the sins of mankind. And that's how you ought to know him. Verse 47 to 52 recount Peter's ill-conceived attempt to stand up for Jesus by cutting off the head of the servant of the high priest. At least... You'd assume that that's what he was trying to do, but Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman. And so when he swung for the head, he got the ear. (laughs) Probably good news for Peter. 
And also good news for the servant of the high priest, if we're being honest. Um, but, but Jesus, he kind of quelches that really quickly by stopping Peter and then healing the ear of the man. And then after that, the disciples flee in fear. And I love the detail we have in verse 51. I don't know if you noticed that one, but it's only found in Mark's gospel. And maybe some people think it really is Mark. That's, he's talking about himself. But we have the detail that one of his followers, who was strangely only wearing a linen cloth. <laughs> it was already, I'm like, what happened? Like, Jesus was like, hey, we're going to the garden now. And somebody was like, wait, I just got out of the shower. Let me grab my towel. Like, you should wear more than a linen cloth when you go outside, generally. <laughs> but that's all he's wearing. And he drops the linen cloth and runs away naked, making him the most famous streaker in the Bible. <laughs> and for eternity, he has that story to tell. <laughs> but that's silly. Uh, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in verse 48 and 49. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And part of what I want us to see is we, if we see this scene from the outside, then it does look very much like evil men hatched a plot, carried it out, Jesus is being violently taken, he's not in control. But then you have these sayings where Jesus says, guys, what are you doing? I'll tell you why you're doing it though. You're doing it because the scriptures need to be fulfilled. And so, all the way along, this is God's plan. Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. So now we have about 2 a.m., and the first trial begins, and apparently the chief priests had meticulously planned Jesus' arrest, but failed to plan well for the trial. I'm missing a page. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> We're okay. It's a good thing I numbered them, eh? Okay. <laughs> Verse 55. That's terrifying. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. It's really hard to point out all the things that are wrong with this picture. But first of all, according to Jewish law, the trials can't be held at this time. And they, they must be held when there's a, the full 70-member uh, Sanhedrin council to be present, which wasn't true. There were a number of them, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, that were left out because they were supporters of Jesus. And so he had kind of handpicked his followers, brought them to his house, and had a mock trial in the middle of the night with handpicked witnesses. But the witnesses, even though they're handpicked, can't get their story straight. They, they can't tell a cohesive story. So they're disagreeing with one another. And I can't imagine what this would have been like. It would have been super embarrassing for the chief priests who are trying to condemn Jesus, but then their own witnesses are arguing with one another against what actually happened, right? And I was thinking, um, wouldn't it be interesting if they called some real witnesses up to the stand, like the, the ones that really spent time with Jesus? And the first guy gets up to the stand, he says, hey, I'm Bartimaeus. <laughs> Once I was blind, but now I see. 
Or what if they called up Legion? My name once was Legion. When nobody else could help me. When I was, when I was naked and destroying things in the middle of the cemetery. Jesus came and he set me free. Or what about Jairus? would have talked about Jesus healing his 12-year-old daughter and bringing her back to life. What about the paralytic? They kept those kind of witnesses away. You should not. The lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people from every walk of life that saw the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus in their lives. Hear their testimony. But they weren't there. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? I think that question is interesting because it's almost as if he's asking Jesus to sort out what all these terrible witnesses have messed up saying, right? What is it that they're saying against you? But he kept silence and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So, why in the world would Jesus answer? He shouldn't say anything when when the witnesses are doing a good enough job destroying their own testimony. Uh, But finally, the, the high priest asks a good question. He asks a question that Jesus is willing to answer. And the question is, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed. Now, at this point, Jesus could have given a vague answer. He could have said whatever he wanted to. He was kind of scot-free, right? There was no other testimony against him. But instead, here's how he answered in verse 62. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am. I am that I am. This is the most God-like thing to say. And you will see the Son of Man. And, you, and some would say, yeah, no, see, he says he's a man. He's the son. No, he's actually referencing Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it's him ascribing to himself deity. In Daniel 7, 13, it says, The Son of Man will be coming with the clouds of heaven. And he, this Son of Man, who comes in the clouds of heaven is given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is claiming deity here, and the high priest knows it. And so in verse 63, the high priest tears his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And again, I love that he's asking this question because it's one that we ought to answer. You've heard what Jesus says. You've heard who he claims to be. But what do you think? While the people in the crowd, this Sanhedrin council, the the religious leaders that are gathered, condemn him to be deserving of death because they understand that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. Can I tell you something? If they're right, 
If Jesus is not the Son of God, then he deserves to die as a blasphemer. Do you understand that? That like this whole trial, everything that happens this day, makes Jesus into a deserving criminal or the Savior of mankind, the Son of God. And it hinges on that one point. Is Jesus the Son of God or not? It's not that he was just a martyr and a good teacher and a moral man who went to the cross. So now look at what these men of God do to him. Verse 65, Then some of them began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. While he's still on trial, he is beaten and humiliated. And if the Jewish leaders had the authority, they would have stoned him immediately. But they didn't. Right? The Romans wouldn't allow them to, to practice capital punishment. So in order to have Jesus killed, they had to bring him to Pontius Pilate, who had the authority to have him crucified. In this text, Mark records this one trial before the high priest. When we look at all the Gospels together, we find that it, between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus actually stood trial three times before a similar group of people. Once at Annas, the, the high priest's father-in-law's house, once at Caiaphas's, the high priest's house, and then once all of them together outside. And in each of those trials, they bring witnesses. In each of those trials, the witnesses don't agree. In each of those trials, Jesus is condemned to death because he's a blasphemer based on his own work, his own words. Now he's sent to Pontius Pilate at 6 a.m., and then Pilate learns that he's a Galilean, so he sends him to Herod, who's in charge of Galilee. That Herod wants him to do a parlor trick, a, some, some kind of miracle, and Jesus won't comply. And so right away, Herod sends him back to Pilate. So at 8 a.m., Jesus is back in front of Pilate in Mark chapter 15, verse 2. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said unto them, It is as you say. Once again, a good question is asked, and Jesus gives the honest answer. I am the king. I am the Christ. I am the son of the blessed. I am the one who will ride on the clouds and receive dominion and power that is absolutely everlasting. I'm the one who deserves worship, and I am the king. Verse 3. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Pilate was amazed. And I just think about how, ah, how cool Jesus is, right? Like, he's having the most important man in Judaism who's, who's just throwing accusations, all kind of things, trying to see what will stick against him. And Jesus is standing before the man who has the power to put him to death, and his mouth is completely silent. He says nothing. And he's, he's fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Pilate's response is exactly what ours should be, is that he marvels. He's amazed. I can't imagine another person not defending themselves. But Jesus sits there as the only one who's truly innocent, and he takes it. He lets them lie. 
But Pilate wants him to answer, right? Because Pilate wants some way out. And so Pilate, not getting the response he wants from Jesus, turns to the crowd. And here we have this custom where uh, once every year at the Passover, there's one prisoner of the Jews that is allowed to go free. And this is kind of a sign of goodwill from the Roman government. And so Pilate first brings Barabbas, who is he's sure that nobody will ever want to go free. Barabbas is a, a rebel. He's one who started an insurrection and then in the process murdered somebody. And so he's a really bad guy. He's guilty, he's condemned, and he deserves to be. And then in verse 9, Pilate asks the crowd a question. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate recognizes what's going on, right? He, he knows that the priests are just driven by their envy and by their desire to keep power. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So Pilate thinks he can leverage the people against the leaders. Because if the people want Jesus free, then what is he supposed to do? Except he doesn't realize how evil they really are. That they've gone in and actually paid and coerced and convinced the crowd to be against Jesus now. Some of the same people who maybe welcomed Jesus are now turned against him. And so here's what happens next in verse 12. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Since when does a judge pull the courtroom to, be what the, to find out what the sentence should be before there's a charge? None of it makes any sense. And so Pilate says to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, crucify him. You almost feel Pilate's pain a little bit. Guys, why? He hasn't done anything. He's done no evil. Why would you crucify him? What is the charge? And they don't have one. They just want him dead. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And Mark here mentions in one phrase one of the most brutal aspects of the crucifixion. Christ was scourged. He took whips, bound bones and sharp fragments, and hit them over his back again and again until it was torn apart. And you can see his insides. Just horrible torture that, that Jesus endured. And then after that, the soldiers take their turn mocking Jesus. You can imagine a group of big, burly guys stripping Jesus naked and throwing purple linen cloth over his bleeding back, giving him a crown of thorns and shoving it into his head, and then getting on their knees and shouting, King of the Jews, hail. And then hitting him with the, the reed that they'd given him over the head. They're having a great time. I think there's a reason that when we look at the crucifixion account, that both Jews and Gentiles are so involved. He was tried by both Jews and Gentiles. He was beaten and mocked by both. They were both there to gleefully watch it all unfold. 
The Jews shout, crucify him, and the Gentiles comply. Even Jesus' own followers have deserted him. Why? Because there is no one innocent of the cross. The crucifixion was made possible because Jews and Gentiles banded together to make it happen. And the crucifixion was necessary because there is none righteous, no, not one. Because all the world is guilty before God. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now Jesus is forced to carry his cross 500 meters up the hill of Calvary. Verse 25, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. By 9 a.m., Jesus is nailed to the cross and he will hang there in agony for six hours. The inscription of the accusation was written above the king of the Jews. And the irony here is that the accusation was true. He was the king. Jesus is crucified between, between two thieves. And verse 28 tells us once again that this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So if at any point you wonder if this has gotten out of control, it has not. And as he hung on the cross, the Roman soldiers, the people in the crowd, and even the thieves beside him continued to mock him. Then at noon, darkness falls on the whole land, and that darkness will last for three hours until Jesus breathes his final breath. Then after six agonizing hours on the cross, Jesus gives up the ghost. And the moment after he takes that final breath, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. And this is just this wonderful symbol that the sacrifice for sin had been made perfectly and that now there was access to God directly through the blood of Christ. There was no longer a barrier. You could go straight there through Christ. Now look at how the leader of the Roman soldiers responds. Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So even those who put Jesus to death ultimately recognized his innocence and who he was in the end. And until Sunday, this is the end of our story. But before you go, I want to make sure we've answered that essential question. Why? Why would Jesus let himself be crucified? What's the reason behind all of this? Do you remember that that picture of the old man and the young woman? Well, from one view, the death of Jesus is the product of a sinister plot that was hatched by powerful men that Jesus died as a martyr. He died As a good teacher, he died as a moral man who was unfortunately sentenced to death. But the truth is, this is not the only time that's ever happened. And maybe, maybe Jesus died because he was guilty. You know, from a human perspective, you could look at these events and say, yeah, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the king. That was was blasphemy and treason. Either way, Jesus' mission had failed And the story was over. You can take that down now. Here's the problem with that view. It's only true 
if the story ends on Friday. But there is a much better way of looking at these events. That this was the plan of God to rescue sinful men and women. That from the beginning, God had promised that he would send one who would come from the seed of the woman and he would crush the head of the serpent. That he would provide a rescue plan. That he would provide a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. That somehow God, even though it seemed completely impossible, had a plan. And so the entire Old Testament whispers, promises, and prophecies and symbols that prepare people for the eventual coming of the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus knew all along what his mission was. He was never confused. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He explains to the disciples in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, for he taught the disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise again the third day. At no point was this out of control. At no point was this not God's sovereign, perfect plan to redeem mankind? And so if you want to know why Jesus went to the cross, the reason that Jesus went to the cross is because it is the only way for sinful people to be forgiven. There is no other way for us to have our sins taken care of unless they're taken care of by Jesus on the cross. He came with a very clear mission, and the cross was it. And when he died on the cross, he was not dying because he was guilty. He was innocent. But he died as a guilty man. Do you want to know why? Because he died for my guilt. Because he bore my sins. The, the crazy thing about all of this is, though from a human perspective, Jesus truly was innocent, and this trial was a farce. From God's view... He was pouring out His wrath on the one who had taken all of our sins. That this was just. It was right for Jesus to die because Jesus bore our sins. So, so God was, he was punishing Jesus instead of us. That means that your sins can be forgiven. And you say, yeah, but you don't know me. I know me. And if my sins can be forgiven, I can assure you yours can too, okay? But I also know that Jesus on the cross is, is asking for the Roman soldiers to be forgiven who are crucifying him, right? He is the one who came to make his enemies into his children. Look at 1 Peter 3.18 and we will conclude here. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And that is the only way you will ever be brought to God. So listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, if you don't know your sins are forgiven, please don't let this Good Friday pass. Right? Ask him to save you. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him. That's what he came for. That's why he died. And if you know Christ, here is the day where we remember where our hope lies. 
it lies in the fact that one came who was perfect, that God came and he died in our place. And that ought to change everything about who we are and how we live. So this Good Friday, it's not wasted. It's not wasted this wonderful reminder that, that our God loved us enough to die in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for the greatest story that's ever been told. We thank you that Jesus truly did come, that he suffered, that he was in agony on the cross because he was pouring out his blood to cover my sins, to cover our sins. Lord, I thank you for the glorious truth that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work this morning. I pray that you work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, if we know you, I pray that you would stir us to love you more. Uh, Lord, if, if there's one here or, or many here today who don't know you, I pray that they would see that Jesus' death is for them and that they would, they would call out to you today. Thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.